Well, good morning, Christ community. Um, my, my name is still Reed Kappel. If you are here last week, uh, I'm, I'm still the same person. But uh, it's a joy to be with you all again and to open God's Word with you. Uh, and so if you do have your Bibles, please do go ahead and turn to Matthew 11. Uh, and, and just kind of as a heads up, we're going to be looking at the, the end of chapter 11 that was just read for us. Uh, and as you're turning there, uh, I wanted to kind of uh, do a little survey here. There, there, there are not many things that I know, uh, which shouldn't come as a huge surprise, but, but one thing that I do know is that if you ask anybody under the age of 18 around this time of year, typically if you ask them when, how many days are left in school until summer break, you'll get a very quick response. And so I'm just going to kind of pull the eye. So, so for those of you under the age of 18, how many days are left until summer break? 15, yeah, you know it. There's the, the, the number is right there. Uh, you've got it counted down. You're anticipating. You can't wait for that day. And so, uh, and, and this is true of all of us. We all have things that we're looking forward to, anticipating, hoping for. Uh, but if we're honest with ourselves, there, there is this moment that when that time arrives, if it's a moment or if it's a person or a thing that we're waiting on, when it arrives, there's this kind of letdown where it, it's good and it's, it's happy and exciting, but there's a sense in which you, you thought it was going to be better than what it was. And, and this is becoming increasingly true in, in our world um, as we have technological advancements that are becoming obsolete faster and faster, and new things are coming out faster and faster, and we're getting trained to be disappointed with what we have the moment we buy it, which is showcased by a great commercial by Best Buy. Take a look at this and you'll see what I'm talking about. It is the newest, even newer. Oh. Everything else is obsolete. I just bought this one. <laughs> oh, whoa, wait. Oh, 4D TV? Oh, stupid. You got the wrong TV, silly head. The new buyback program. You buy it now, we buy it back when the new thing comes out. It's true. Like we all feel like right now you're like, yeah, actually this phone is a, this is a paperweight. You know, you're all feeling that. We, we all have these things that we have, we're hoping for, anticipating, and the moment comes. And, and while it is good and enjoyable, it's, it's not as great as we thought it would be. And, and you know, whether, it's, whether it's summer break, you can't wait for it. And then sometimes you're like, well, summer break was a waste of time. And then you're looking forward to vacation. You're looking forward to a holiday, to a concert. Uh, you're looking forward to retirement. And there's just there are these things and they come it just doesn't match up to your expectations. And we're all chasing after something. We're all hoping, waiting, anticipating for something. And really, if you think about it, our, our lives in many ways are, are being led by these things, that we're, we're allowing even some of our decisions, the way we spend our time, to be influenced by the things that we are hoping for, waiting for, anticipating. And, and really, if you think about that, in, in some ways, these things that we're hoping for, in, in allowing our lives to be led by them, there's a sense in which it, it's, it's causing us to become a, a different kind of person even. We, we rearrange our values, our times, our relationships all around these things that we are hoping for. And, and this, is, this is true in so many ways and we recognize this, but, but there, uh, the theologian G.K. Beale in his book, We Are What We Worship, he points this out really well for us. He says, at the core of our beings, each and every one of us, at the core of our beings, we are imaging creatures. It is not possible to be neutral on this issue. We either reflect the creator or something in creation. And this is true of all of us. We all are reflecting something. And we may not recognize that. And we're waiting for something. We may not recognize that. And we're all being led by something, even though we may not recognize that. 
But some of us are, might be hearing this like, this is just kind of religious speak. I mean, this is just kind of, kind of spiritual rhetoric that, that Christians use to talk about this phenomenon. And, and this is true of all people, regardless of your religious affiliation, that we all have things we're anticipating and looking forward to. And it really, I mean, we all have some kind of religion that we are devoted to. In fact, the Oxford English Dictionary defines religion in, in many ways, but one definition is this, something that one is devoted to. That's simply it. And so by that definition, we all are religious in one way, shape, or form. Something that we are devoted to, we give our lives to, we anticipate. And that's why the words of the great theologian Bob Dylan ring very true for us. In his, in his great song, You're Gonna Have to Serve Somebody. And in his chorus, he, he essentially points us out. You're gonna have to serve somebody, yes indeed. You're gonna have to serve somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord but you're gonna have to serve somebody. And again, we're all in search of something, waiting for something. And, and we could even kind of categorize it in this way of saying we're all looking for the good life. And, and if you've been with us as we've been journeying through the Gospel of Matthew, we've talked about the search for the good life and who the good person is and what that looks like. And, and this morning, what I want us to do is we think about all of our searches for the good life uh, we need to be honest and ask ourselves, what is it that we are allowing our lives to be led by? What is it that we are putting our hope in, and how are we defining the good life? And so, so two questions I just want to pose for us to, to think about as we journey through Matthew 11, the end of Matthew 11. The first question is this, where are you going, and is it really where you want to go? As you think about your life, the things that are leading your life, ask yourself this question, where are you going, and is it really where you want to go? And secondly, what is leading your life, and is it turning you into who you really want to be? What is leading your life, and is it turning you into who you really want to be? So this morning, as we turn to Matthew 11, and we're just going to look at verses 25 through 30, Jesus is going to show us that, that what we need more than anything to find the good life is this. Now, some of you might be thinking, what on earth does an antiquated agricultural tool have to do with the life I long to live? Thank you for asking that question. Um, and we're going to see. You're just going to have to wait and find out. But what Jesus is pointing us to is that this is actually what we need to find the life, enter the life that we all long to live. And so as we look at Matthew 11, 25 through 30, what we're going to see as we explore this life that we are all hoping for, what we're going to see is that we're going to see who invites us in, what keeps us out, and how we enter. Who invites us in, what keeps us out, and how we enter. But before we jump in, let me just pray for our time um, as we open God's word together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that, um, that you would bless the, the, the reading, the teaching of your word, that, that whatever is false that comes out of my lips, Lord, that would be forgotten, and that whatever is true in accordance with your, your word would be understood, would be embraced, and, and lived out. So Lord, speak to us, teach us. Give us the words that we are not naturally quick to hear and receive. And may you do this for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing is, who is it that invites us in? I'm sure most of us have probably received an invitation at some point in our life to something, uh, to a party, to a fundraiser, to a concert. And, and what's true of invitations is that the significance of the invitation is really only as significant as the person who's sending the invitation, you know? So, so to be invited by the president to a, a special banquet dinner at the White House, that's, that's significant. That is a very important invitation. 
to receive a mass mailer from Petco to invite you to save 15% on gerbil food, like that's, not, like that's not really that great of an invitation. It all is found in the significance of the person sending it. And so as we think about invitations and who it is that is inviting us to this life we long to live, we must explore who this person is in order to understand the significance of the invitation. And spoiler alert, the, invita- the invitation is coming to us from Jesus. Uh, now, I'll, let me illustrate this kind of value of invitation uh, piece. When I was in high school, uh, I, w- I remember going to a rock and roll concert, and I was front row. Uh, the band was called Everclear, and I, I loved this band, and I was in front row. And, and the, uh, the lead singer, Art Alexakis, I was so just enthralled with this band, he's pointing at people, inviting them to come up on stage to sing with him. And I was just like, oh, I mean, I was just raising my I was like, I want to sing, I want to sing. And he points at me and like summons me. I was like, yes! And so I get up on stage, the security guards let me up, and I'm up there singing in the microphone with Art Alexakis. You don't know who it is, but, uh, but like, I, was, I was just so excited. But what I, I, as I turn around to look, all these other people that he invited up on stage, it was me and a bunch of very attractive women. Now, now I, I felt very special to be up there, but a little, just a little insignificant fact about me in high school, I had long curly blonde hair. I don't know if this is true. I don't know if this is, but I think he thought I was an attractive woman and invited me up on stage for that very reason. So I don't know if I should be flattered or offended or not, but regardless, I was invited. I felt significant, regardless of the reality of what gender he thought I had. So anyway, so I get up on stage, I'm singing. The point is is that the significance of what we're invited to is found in the significance of the person who does the inviting. And so again, as we look at who it is that invites us, as we look at Jesus, the one who invites us into the life we long to live, we need to see who he is. And so in verses 25 through 27, I want us to give very close attention to who Jesus says that he is, because it's one thing for us to say who Jesus is, but we must understand who Jesus introduces himself to be. And what we see in verse 25, uh, as, as Jesus begins this prayer, it says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. The first thing we see here is that Jesus refers to God as Father, thus implying that he is the Son of God. And as we continue to read in verse 27, Jesus makes this identity, this relationship of God the Father and Jesus the Son more explicit. In verse 27, all things, Jesus continues, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now this passage, it's one of the most explicit uh, passages in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where we see the clear relationship between God as Father and Jesus as Son. In fact, some theologians have referred to this as the the Johannian thunderbolt because it is so similar to how the, the Apostle John writes about the relationship of Jesus the Son and God the Father. The Gospel of John is all about Jesus is the Son of God. And that is what Matthew is trying to show us in this passage. Jesus is identifying himself as the Son of God. And Jesus not only boldly proclaims himself as the Son of God, but he does so with great frequency. uh, Matthew records over 30 instances of Jesus referring to God, the creator of heaven and earth, as his Father. And to be clear, this is more than just a description of relational affiliation. Jesus isn't just kind of saying, this is my father, but but there is something of intimacy and oneness and connection here that we must not miss. 
In fact, one commentator in describing this passage and writing on this passage says this very, very accurately. It is often in a person's prayers that his truest thoughts about himself come to the surface. For this reason, the thanksgiving of Jesus here recorded is one of the most precious pieces of spiritual autobiography found in the Synoptic Gospels. Now, one thing we need to do here, just just to pause and recognize, is that Jesus' claim to be the the Son of God is profoundly shocking at best and and, and profoundly offensive at worst, and we have to see that. And, And this is true, I mean, regardless of your religious affiliation, regardless of your identity as a Christian or not, we have to wrestle with what, what does it mean that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God? Because to make the claim, I, I know I said this last week, that, that, that Jesus says a lot of things that disqualifies him from simply being understood and received as a good moral teacher in our life. And this is one of these instances where Jesus is not giving us the luxury of just saying Jesus is a good moral teacher. To make the claim that Jesus, that he is the Son of the one who gave the stars their gleaming, to make the claim that he is the son of the one who gave the rocks they're carving, the trees they're leafing, to claim that that is my father is either an undeniable truth that, that we must respond to in worship and praise or a completely offensive lie that should lead us to lock this man up. Those are our options. And so we have to ask ourselves, when we understand what it means that Jesus is the son of God, the one who invites us into the life we long to live, what do we mean? What do we, how do we understand that this claim that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, in addition to Jesus emphatically declaring his his identity as the Son, he goes on to, to make this identity even greater by showing that he is the King that God has sent. The King that God has sent. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Jesus says this in his prayer. And this phrase, all things here, it literally means all things. Jesus is not just the steward of a few things that that, that God hands over. He is the divine king over all things. Jesus, yes, is the the, the one true son of God, but we also see that he is the, the, the true past, present, and future king that God has sent to reign and rule over all things, that he has great authority. And what Jesus is revealing about himself, even though the word king is not in this scripture, in this passage, the the role of a king is clearly seen in the phrase of all things, that God has given Jesus all authority and power over all things. And, And what Jesus is showing about himself in this passage is what the Apostle Paul, later on in Colossians 1, and what's referred to as the great Christ hymn, is what Paul shows us who Jesus is. And if you'll notice, I want to read that passage, you'll notice this phrase, all things, coming back again and again. Paul writes, referring to Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before All things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus, the one who invites us into the life that each of us longs to live, is not only the true Son of God, but he is the true king sent by God. And again, he's making it very difficult for us to receive him as simply a moral teacher. We have to ask ourselves, who is it 
that is inviting us in. But Jesus continues and reveals that he's not only the son of God, he's not only God's king that he has sent to reign and rule, but he is also the prophet, the true prophet who has come to reveal the truth of God to God's people. And Jesus' prayer, he continues on, and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Just like the prophets in the Old Testament, Jesus has the power and authority to make known the truth and the will of God to anyone. But here's the thing that's unique about Jesus over and above the Old Testament prophets is that he has the right to choose whom he reveals this truth to, which was not a luxury that the Old Testament prophets had. And so what we see is that Jesus is showing himself to be the son of God, God's true king, but also the great prophet who has the authority and power to make known to God, to make known the truth of God to whomever he pleases. Or in other words, Jesus here is is the one who is able to make the unknowable God knowable. To take the unknowable God and make him understandable in the minds of men, women, and children. This is the role of Jesus, the great prophet. But let me say something here. The focus of this text should not be, because our focus might kind of go towards, well, I think we need to figure out kind of who's in and who's out. Because if, if Jesus is the one choosing who gets to know, well, then we need to figure out who's in and who's out. And, and what I want us to see, while that is a, a worthy conversation, the, the point of what Jesus is showing here is, is not so much about sharpening our doctrinal views on who's in and who's out. Rather, the focus is on the fact that the unknowable God can be known and that through Christ, we can know him. And what Jesus is really doing, he's he's creating a contrast. And what we have to see is that there is this contrast between the wise and the foolish, which we'll get to in a second. But the point of this text is not about trying to figure out who's in, who's out. Am I in, am I out? But, But understanding the fact that the unknowable God can not only be known, but that he is known through Christ. And if Christ is who he says he is, then we have a confidence that if we are in Christ, we can know God as a loving father, and we can be known by him as his dearly beloved children. If Christ is who he says he is, then we have confidence that God is not only knowable, but that he can be personally known because Jesus is God's true son who has been given all authority as God's king to make known the truth of God as God's prophet. But then Jesus shows us one more role that he has as the one who invites us in, and that is that he is the priest. Just as the Old Testament priests offered sacrifices on behalf of the people of God as a way to to show that forgiveness and freedom is possible with God, Jesus is coming and saying, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you a rest. That he is inviting all of us to come to lay our burdens before him. Who on earth has the authority and the ability to take the burdens of all humanity upon himself? And what Jesus is showing us is that not only is he the true son of God, Not only is he the great king over all things, not only is he the true prophet who reveals the truth of God, but he is the priest who intercedes, who mediates, who connects, who makes the bridge between the unknowable God and finite creatures like you and I. Jesus' promise of rest that that we'll get to in a second is only trustworthy if we truly see him as the divine son, as the authoritative king, as the revealing prophet and as the mediating priest. When we understand this son, when we understand this king, this prophet, this priest, we understand a little bit more the significance of what we are invited into. And yet, 
even in seeing who it is that invites us in, there still stands something that can keep us out. And and that's what we turn to next in verses 25 through 26. Jesus shows us that, that, that there's a barrier that will actually keep us from knowing God and being known by him fully in a, in a close relationship. And what Jesus, but, but Jesus, he kind of reveals it in a, in a weird, funny way. It seems backwards. In, in verse 25 and 26, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and that you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, what Jesus is doing here in this prayer Again, the focus is not on who's in and who's out and how do we figure if if I'm in and if I'm out. The focus is on a contrast that Jesus is showing. He's describing the postures and the attitudes of those that do not know the truth and those that do. And he contrasts it with these two, the wise and understanding on one side and children on the other. And, and really, if, you, if you've read Matthew, uh, you, you'll probably understand that like when, when you see the phrase, the wise, and, and this is shown in other parts of scripture as well, that that's usually used in a kind of sarcastic way, that it's, it's, it's almost backwards, that the wise are referred to the arrogant, the boastful, the proud, the self-righteous. And what Jesus is saying is that these are the people that, that the truth is not made known to. Because in their arrogance, they see no need for the truth of God. In their arrogance, they see no need for rescue and forgiveness. They don't recognize their own brokenness. But a a child has the posture of humility of saying, I don't know everything. And and I recognize my need for rescue. And I know that I'm broken. I need to be restored and forgiven. And so, and and this is this is the contrast here is true because if I mean if you're familiar with the scriptures, it is a constant theme that God is opposed to the proud. It is our pride that distances ourselves from God. So much so that I mean it's the root of almost every sin. Pride is the sin behind almost every sin that we find ourselves guilty of. In in the book of Proverbs, there's this uh, chapter 16, I believe. There's this section where it lists off things that God hates, and the first thing on that list is the haughty eyes of men or the boastfulness of men. And this is what God is opposed to, because it is our pride that says, "I don't need you. I am sufficient in myself. I am independent. I am self-reliant. I have no need of a savior, of a God, of a creator, of a rescuer." That's why in Matthew 9, Jesus says, I have not come for for the the healthy but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. And and so the question for us that we have to ask ourselves is not so much, am I in or am I out? Who's in, who's out? But honestly, just ask yourself right now, is my life characterized more by the wise and understanding, people who boast in themselves and their abilities, who recognize they are who they are, they have what they have, and they are where they are because of who they are and what they've done? Or are you more like a child who recognizes I'm broken, I am in need of a rescuer, that all that I am, all that I have is by the grace of God? That is the question we must ask ourselves. Do you identify with the wise and understanding or do you identify with the child who is humble? This is what we must understand. And so when it comes to responding to Jesus, yeah, we can get into some big conversations about who's in, who's out, who does Jesus reveal these things to, But really, when it comes to what we know and where we stand, we have to ask the question, am I wise or am I a child? And what Jesus shows us is is our pride, our arrogance, our boastfulness that keeps us out. So we've seen who it is that invites us in, that makes the significance of the invitation all that more meaningful. We've seen what keeps us out, but lastly, we turn to how we enter. 
In verses 28 through 30, we see this very clearly for us. That the life we long to live, the life of completion, of wholeness, of joy, and of rest is found in the yoke of Christ. And Jesus shows us this in the last few verses. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus has come to bring, bring us into the life that each of us longs to live and he's doing so through a yoke. And so, so the question for us is like, what, what does this mean? But more importantly, what on earth is a yoke? <laughs> you know, like you, you, some of you might be sitting like, what is this thing? This, I've never seen this before. It just looks like a, a form of like torture and slavery. And, and, and interestingly, that's, that's actually an accurate depiction, which I'll get to in a second. But, but the yoke, and, and some of you might even be thinking like, I know we live in Kansas, you know, do we need to affirm that we're like hicks, you know, and there's cows around here and stuff? You know, Patrick's wearing a pearl snap shirt this morning. And so, no, just kidding. I love it. I own pearl snaps. I invest in them. But the, the yoke, in, in case you just don't know what, they are, what it is, the yoke was designed not, not necessarily or ultimately to be a, a tool of efficiency in, in farming, but it was a training tool. And so if you notice one side, I did this first service, you got to do this. I'm in the yoke here. It's beautiful. You can come take pictures afterwards if you want, but... But one side is larger than the other. And it was because you would have a more experienced ox in one side who has been doing this for a while, who's stronger, wiser, experienced, and he would be yoked to a weaker, younger, inexperienced ox. And the weaker, younger, inexperienced ox would want to go his own way, thrash. They didn't naturally plow straight lines. And they had to learn how to be an ox as they were created by being yoked to the more experienced ox. And so even though this ox would not want to go where this ox went, he was led to go and eventually learned what it means to plow, what it means to be an ox. And so this imagery, as you think about what this looks like, what Jesus is saying is that this is what I'm inviting you into with me. This is the picture that Jesus is showing as the pathway to the life that each of us longs to live which sounds really weird and really backwards, that Jesus is using this imagery of slavery because all throughout the scriptures, almost every instance where the word yoke is used in the Bible, it's almost always negative. It's almost always meant as an imagery of slavery, of being bound. And yet here, Jesus is using an imagery of slavery as a pathway to freedom. And herein lies the great irony of the life that we long to live, and it's this that the freer we are to live our lives in accordance with our desires, our dreams, goals, and ambitions, the more enslaved we are to them. And the more enslaved, the more bound, the more yoked we are to Christ, the freer we are to live the life that we were designed to live. It sounds backwards to us, but this is so true. I mean, we tend to think, I, I need more freedom to live my life, but what we find is that when we live our lives for our goals, dreams, and ambitions, when we become our own masters, we find that we are terrible masters. And we find ourselves yoked to ourselves, to our dreams, and we will do whatever it takes to get those dreams to be reality. And when our dreams and goals are our master, we find ourselves being led somewhere we actually don't want to go and becoming somebody we don't want to be. But Jesus shows us the great irony that when we are free from the things that enslave us, free from living for our own desires and living in the yoke of Christ, we find freedom. 
Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine, perhaps you've heard this illustration before, but uh, imagine a train, a train on, on a track. And this train has some anthropological uh, capabilities like Thomas the Tank and can think and has, is cognizant and says, I don't want to be bound by these tracks. I want to live my life how I want. I want to, I want to experience the open road and, and smell lilies and stuff like that. And so this train is able to uproot itself from the tracks and place itself in this open field. Is the train free to be a train? No. It is not until the train is bound to the tracks and is forced to go where the tracks lead that it is able to be what it was designed to be, a train. When it ceases to be on the tracks, when it removes itself, I'm free now in this field, the train cannot be free. It is bound by its limitations because it was not designed to live however it wanted, designed to go wherever it wants to go. The train was designed to be on the tracks in the same way you and I were designed to be yoked to something, to someone far greater than ourselves, our dreams, and ambitions. And that is to be yoked to Christ. The yoke of Christ is not a place where we can do whatever we want, but neither is the yoke a pathway to this kind of new to-do list religion where we have these things that we must do and check off. It is not about being yoked to a process, to a system, to a moral code. We are yoked to a person. And we must not miss that. Jesus is not inviting us into a new system, a new seven-step process. He is yoking us to himself. And the yoke is an invitation to enter a life of intimacy, of relationship with Jesus as his apprentice, to learn from him, to learn with him, to go where he goes, to follow his lead, The yoke is where Christ joins us to himself in such a way that we don't simply learn by hearing him and listening to him, but we learn in some ways by observing him, by being so acquainted with him that we would know what he would do in any situation because we have been yoked to him so closely. This is the imagery that Jesus gives in leading the life, finding the life that we long to live. But there's this question that I'm sure some of you are asking, but what does it mean that his yoke is easy? Like, I, I get that imagery, okay, this makes sense, but how is it easy? The reason Jesus' yoke is easy is understood when we know the one whom we're yoked to. That's why Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Relatively speaking, the yoke of Christ is easy and light compared to the yokes of our dreams, goals, and ambitions that we live for and the various masters that we so readily and easily give our lives to. And Jesus says, you will not find a better master than me. You will not find a lighter yoke than mine. Enter into it and find rest. But the other thing we have to see about the yoke is that it's easy in the sense that the word easy, translated from the Greek, it usually is translated good or kind. And what it literally means is, it means um, what is, furn- what is uh, it furnishes what is needed. That's what, that's what it literally means. The yoke is tailor-made. If you notice, like I said, one's bigger, one's smaller. The yoke was designed for an ox, tailor-made for that ox. In the same way, when we enter the yoke of Christ, his yoke is tailor-made for you and I, set around our abilities, our gifts and talents that are given to us by God, our weaknesses and failures. The yoke is tailor-made for us, and he furnishes what is needed for the journey. The yoke is not something that Jesus imposes on us. It is something that he invites us into and that he shares with us. And what this means is that not only is Jesus with us wherever we go, but it means that he will lead us everywhere, anywhere. He will will never take us anywhere that he has not been himself, that he will not ask us to lose something that he himself has not lost, 
that he will not demand things of us that he has not experienced himself. We share in the yoke of Christ. Again, we are not yoked to a system, to a process. We're yoked to a person. The yoke is not simply about improving our lives. It's not about helping us make better decisions. It is about entering in to a pathway of living where we find freedom in the most bizarre way. It doesn't seem like it makes sense to us. But the more we are yoked to Christ, bound to Christ, the freer we are to find the life that we've always longed for. And here's the interesting thing is that the the rest, the life, the wholeness, the joy that we are looking for in life, it is found in this backwards, weird imagery of slavery. But what we have to also understand is that as Matthew has kind of developed this theme, if you remember from last week, while Jesus is using an imagery of slavery to express freedom, last week he showed us an imagery of death as a pathway to life. And so how do we enter the yoke of freedom in Christ? We, we experience it, we find it, we, we enter it through the cross. That through the cross, a symbol of death, we find life. Through the yoke, a symbol of slavery, we find freedom. This is the pathway to the life that each of us longs to live. Just as Jesus used the cross as a symbol of death to lead us to life, he uses the yoke, image of slavery, to lead us to freedom. And it is not until we share in the death of Christ that we are able to share in his life. And the Apostle Paul lays this out so well for us in Romans 6, showing us that this is not just a religion, this is not a system of, of ethics and a moral code, but that we are united and we share in Christ's life and death. Paul says in Romans 6, for we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, enslaved to live however we want. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We share in the yoke of Christ by first sharing in the cross of Christ. So, so as, as, we, as we kind of bring this all to a close, a few things I just want us to consider and reflect on are these um, as, as you think about your life, as you think about the life you're longing to live, the things that you're allowing your life to be led by, the first thing I would say is, is just ask yourself the question I said earlier, are, are you wise or are you a child? And, and really just the application point here is just humble yourself. Do you find yourself being a person who is more boastful and arrogant in your abilities and talents or do you find yourself recognizing that you are weak and broken and need of rescue? Recognize that you aren't as awesome as you think you are. Embrace the posture of a child as Jesus describes And see that the life you long to live is not found in you being able to do whatever you want, but in surrendering your life to Christ. And and that leads to the second thing is to get yoked. And and what I mean by that is that for some of us, that means for the first time, that you have never even considered entering this yoke because it seems so foreign and backwards. And for some of us, we need to enter into this yoke for the first time to say, my life is not my own. I am being led by so many things that destroy me. I need to enter into this backwards pathway of freedom that actually makes more sense than I could have possibly understood. And while we don't have time to go into great detail on this, some of the the best ways that we stay yoked to Christ, because for some of us we need to enter for the first time, but for some of us we need to continue to stay yoked to Christ. And what that looks like is is to engage in things like the spiritual disciplines, engaging the scriptures, reading the scriptures, studying the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures, praying through the scriptures, engaging in disciplines like, like silence and solitude, Engaging in a discipline like, like fasting where we suspend our interests and desires for things and recognize our joy is found in Christ. 
And if, you, if you'd like to learn more about that, we would love to share resources with you on what it looks like to engage in the disciplines. But lastly, we should humble ourselves, we should get yoked, but realize that all of that is for the purpose of delighting in Jesus. That the disciplines are a means to an end, not, a, not an opportunity for us to check off some kind of to-do list. And Pastor Bill Gorman, he's at our, our Brookside campus, he says this so well, it was actually in our yoke curriculum. He just describes, he said, the disciplines aren't about getting God to love us or bless us. He has already loved and blessed us to the nth degree in and through Jesus. Rather, the disciplines are about making, are, are about making the reality of the love of, and acceptance and blessing that are ours in Jesus come alive in our hearts in ways that transform our approach to everything. So as I asked that question earlier in the service, where are you going and is it really where you want to go? And what, and what is leading your life? And is it, is it turning you into the person you want to be? We should, we should do honest inventory of our lives and just say, what, what is it that's leading me? And while the list is long of things that we are so quick and ready to turn to, to live our lives for and to serve and to be led by, one thing I know is for certain that you will never find a greater master, a greater leader, a greater savior than Christ. And you will not find a more freeing more joyful, more restful yoke than his. That's why Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen.